0: You have a big nose and beaver teeth. I'll let you figure out who I'm talking about this morning. No. I don't know if anyone's ever said anything like that to you, but that was something one of my kids said to me (laughs) at one point. The last time I shaved my beard off was the last time I shaved my beard off. And one of the reasons was because one of my kids' responses was, you have a big nose and beaver teeth. Um, and I thought, well, that answers that. No more questions need to be asked. You ever have someone tell you the truth when you weren't really asking for it? We all need people in our lives that will tell us the truth at times, right? Right? We need people in our lives that will confront us and speak things into our lives, uh, even when we're not looking for it. We need someone from the outside to kind of give us direction, right? It's like, uh, for me, uh, driving, uh, I think Waze was invented just for me. Uh, You may use it too, but uh, it was really invented for me because when I'm driving, I have so many more important things to do than pay attention to where I'm going um, so I need someone to, like, break into my conversation, break into my thinking or, or my, you know, what I'm doing and say, take the next left turn. Because if I don't have someone telling me that, I'm probably not going to do it. I need someone that at times is going to say, make the next legal U-turn, uh, which she seems to say to me quite a bit. Uh, I'm just glad they haven't programmed ways to get frustrated with you yet. <laughs> Because I feel like sometimes I make so many wrong turns, they're just gonna be like, you are an idiot, and just shut down. Um, But we all need people in our lives at times to speak truth to us. We need people in our lives that are going to give us some direction and speak honestly to us. Uh, We all want uh, certain people in our lives that serve roles, to be honest with us, right? Say your mechanic and your doctor. You want your mechanic and your doctor to be honest with you and speak truth to you, right? You go and take your car in, and maybe your mechanic tells you, hey, yeah, everything looks great. Yeah, no problem. Looks like it just rolled off the lot. You're good to go. You know, and then you get home, or you're on your way home. You try and hit the brakes, and they don't work, and you get into a car accident, and you go back and you say, well, what happened? You, yeah, I thought everything was great. And he's like, well, you know, we've got such a good relationship. I didn't want to ruin that. I didn't want to, like, you know, say anything that would come between you and me and our relationship. You want your mechanic to be honest with you. Same with your doctor, right? You go to the doctor. If your doctor gives you a clean bill of health, you want to be able to trust that. You know, you, you go to the doctor, and he says everything's fine. You go home, and you're having trouble breathing. And he's like, oh, yeah, you get some heart issues, but I didn't want to bring that up. I wasn't sure if you were ready for that. And I mean, that's not what you want from your doctor. We all need people in our lives that at times will speak truth to us, and even hard truths, and even truths we may not be asking for, and we may not be ready to hear. Uh, We need somebody in our life who's going to do that. Similar thing happens to us with God. Sometimes we learn about God, and there are things in our lives that we need to change. And we need God to point them out. We're starting a new series this morning. And uh, the new series we're starting at Mount Hope over the next six weeks is called Overwhelmed, Major Lessons from the Minor Prophets. And I think, do we have some slides there? No, no slides. All right, you're going to have to follow me then. Um, So we've got, we're going, this series is called Overwhelmed, Major Lessons from the Minor Prophets. And I want to talk a little bit about the minor prophets because it's kind of a strange word. Prophet you may be familiar with, but minor prophets may be a little strange to you. Uh, So the Minor Prophets are 12 books in the Bible. Let me just break that out a little for you too. So the Bible, we often refer to as one book, and it is, but it's really broken up into 66 different books written by about 40 or so authors over a period of about 1,600 years. All of those authors inspired by God to write those words compiled into one book, but inside that one book, there's these 66 different books broken up into two major sections Old Testament and New Testament, or you might hear them called Old Covenant and New Covenant. Uh, Old Covenant before Jesus, New Covenant begins with the life of Jesus, and then from that point forward. And at the end of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, you have these books that are called the Minor Prophets. There's 12 of them. Um, minor prophets. They're short books right at the end of the Old Testament, just before the time, a um, little bit before the time of Jesus. Uh, they're the last prophets of God. They're the last voice of God before John the Baptist and Jesus comes on the scene. Um, and so you have these 12 minor prophets. But I'll be honest, if, even if you've been a Christian a long time and you read your Bible pretty regularly, Most Christians I know don't spend a lot of time in the minor prophets. The minor prophets are kind of like those small towns in America that you drive by, but you never really stop in very long. Um, You know, small town, you you get a lot of towns in America that maybe, you know, a lot of people went to until the freeway came in, and then once the freeway comes in, nobody goes there anymore. I feel like the Minor Prophets, one author, commentator, has said the Minor prophet is kind of like those small town neighborhoods, those small towns that you kind of drive by and no one goes. My wife is not with me this morning. She's in a place called Lubbock, Texas. How many have heard of Lubbock, Texas? We've got a few. How many have been to Lubbock, Texas? Uh, just my son. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and Don, too. Vanda to Lubbock. All uh, right. We've got a couple. Lubbock, Texas isn't actually even a small town. It's a decent sized city, a couple hundred thousand people. But it's not a place a lot of people go to. Uh, not a place a lot of people visit. It's in the western north part of Texas. It's way up there away from every place else. Like it's not near Houston and Dallas and San Antonio, all these other places you hear about. In fact, some people around here that aren't really familiar with Texas, when the hurricane hit Houston, they came up and they asked, oh, are your in-laws okay, and is everything okay? And, and I would usually politely say, yeah, they're, they're, they're fine, thanks for asking. What I really want to say to them, though, is let me give you this example, what you just asked me. It's raining in Boston, and you just asked me if someone in Ohio is getting wet. That's how far <laughs> they are away from, uh, like, Houston and that area. So they're in Lubbock, Texas, this little small town. It's surrounded by towns that are aptly named Brownfield and Shallow Water um, and Flatland. Um, that's, that's what's around Lubbock. But here's what you find when you go to some of these small towns or these towns in America that you don't go to. Um, when you go there, I think what you find sometimes is there's some pretty cool stuff that's there. If you go to Lubbock, you'll find out it's the home of Buddy Holly, if you're a Buddy Holly fan. Texas Tech University's there. They have a wind museum. If you've ever wanted to go to a museum of moving air, there's a wind museum in Lubbock. But there's some pretty cool stuff there. And there's some pretty good stuff there, helpful stuff as well. First time I met my father-in-law from Lubbock, I was living in Lowell at the time. And he said, I've heard of Lowell. And I thought to myself, you have not heard of Lowell. You are from Lubbock, Texas. You may have heard of Boston, but you've not heard of Lowell. And he said, no, I've heard of Lowell. He said, when I was a kid, we used to pick cotton. And we'd pick cotton and we would ship it. One of the places the cotton would get shipped to was Lowell, Massachusetts, and it would get shipped up to the mills, and it would get processed there. And, uh, and I had no idea. There was this connection between Lubbock, Texas, and Lowell, Massachusetts. And, uh, and the interesting thing about that is when you go to some of these towns, what you learn is there's some pretty cool stuff there, and there's some pretty useful, meaningful stuff there as well that you might not have known was there. And I feel like the minor prophets are kind of like that little town where we're gonna go over the next several weeks and we're gonna read some of these books and you're gonna say, I didn't even know that was in there. I didn't know that book was there. I'm not sure if that's a name of a you know, minor prophet or a character from Game of Thrones. I don't know what that name is. And we're gonna go there and you're gonna find some interesting stuff, but you're also gonna find some things that are good that are helpful, that are going to speak to us in these times. They're called minor prophets because the books are shorter, not because, as Walt Kaiser says, they're Bush League prophets. They're not Bush League prophets. They're not the minor leagues, like they're waiting to get called up, like, you know, have one good year of prophecy, and then maybe you can become a major league prophet. That's not what they are. These are words from God, but they're shorter books. Some of them are pages, two pages. One of them, Obadiah, is just one chapter, like 21 verses. Um, so they're shorter, and that's the only reason they're called minor prophets. Um, so that's who they are. Let me give you a little sense of when they lived. I'm going to ask the ushers. You guys got a handout? Uh, can you hand out that timeline that you have and I'll pass those out, and we'll give you an idea of when these prophets lived? Because I think it's help. Excuse me. I think it's helpful to have kind of a framework of what we're talking about and when we're talking about. And Pastor Brian, as he's here over the next several weeks going through this series, is going to reference this timeline within the series just so you know kind of where we're talking about and what's going on in the larger um, arc of biblical history and the larger arc of God's plan for God's people. So you have this timeline of the minor prophets that's there. And so I'm just going to give you a snapshot. I'm not, going to go, I'm not going to go real in depth into this, but this is important background information. This morning we're calling this a minor introduction because this is kind of the introductory message to the next six weeks of messages that we're going to be in at Mount Hope. And some of this background work is important for us to understand the rest of the messages. So in the history of God's people, Israel in the Old Testament... Uh, line of Abraham, God's people, the whole purpose of Israel was to be the people of God, to be able to share the message of God with the world of God, all right? So Israel is not chosen by God because uh, we know that they are special or any different than any other nation. They're chosen by God because God chose them. We don't know why. They're, God just chose them and he said, You're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. And your job is to be an example to the world of how I am your God and you are your people so that the world can see who I am through the way that I relate to you and you relate to me. And uh, if you go to Genesis chapter 12, part of the Abrahamic prophecy is that you'll be a blessing to the whole world. And so. Israel, the nation, was to be an example of who God's people were and who God was to the whole world. And so, in the timeline of Israel, you have, uh, for a while there, in the beginning of your Old Testament, they're governed by God and by judges, but then eventually they say, we want a king. We want a king like other nations. And God says, okay, I'll give you a king. Gives him a king by the name of Saul, who's not on your sheet there. If he was, he would be just to the left of David's name. After Saul, there was a king named David. King David, the one, if you're familiar with biblical stories, Bathsheba, Goliath, that David. King David, after David, his son Solomon became king, and Solomon was the last king over a united Israel. After Solomon, it breaks off into two different kingdoms, a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. So, this may explain a lot if you weren't familiar with this and you read through your Bible at some point, and and you hear things like, and so-and-so was king in Israel at this time, and so-and-so was king in Judah at this time. So it's framing the time period by telling you who the king is in each of these different kingdoms, the divided. It's called the divided kingdom. So 931 BC, the kingdoms divide. Israel in the north. Judah in the south. So what you can see on your timeline is those names in orange, those are the small town America, the small towns we're talking about. Those are the minor prophets. You get Jonah, Nahum up top, prophecies, prophets to Nineveh. You get Amos and Hosea, who are uh, prophets to the northern kingdom. And then you get Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Haggai, and Malachi, prophets to the southern kingdom, Zechariah. And then you get Obadiah out there, who's a prophet to the um, nation called Edom, and we'll talk more about that another day. Um, But you have these 12 minor prophets. Uh, You have the time period there. The important thing to understand is where they fall in the time period of pre-exile, during the exile, and return from exile, all right? And this is why it's important, because here's what happens with God's people, and this is unlike any other religion that certainly was around at the time and probably unlike most or any other religion you really know about god sends his people into exile god sent this was part of his plan and this if you are a person who really ascribes to prosperity gospel or if you believed that, hey, when I become a Christian, everything's gonna go perfect for me, the exile really presents a problem for you because the exile was God's plan for God's people at the time because God sent them into exile in order to be purified, in order to be made more the people that he wanted them to be. And that's important to understand as we're talking about the minor prophets. They spoke in a time where pagan people seemed, seemed to prosper and God's people began to look more like pagan people than the people of God. Pagan people seemed to be prospering and God's people started to look more like pagan people than the people of God. And so God says, look, you're my people. And so God says in the New Testament, the Lord disciplines those he loves and the exile was in a sense a discipline to remind them, you are the people of God. And he sends them into this exile. And so that's when they are talking. So you have to understand that because some of the people are gonna bring comfort and they're gonna say, look, you're not gonna be in this exile forever. Some of the people are gonna bring strong words of judgment. If you don't change, you're going into exile. Some of the people are going to talk, some of the minor prophets talking about, we've just come out of exile. And now what does this mean for who we're supposed to be? All right, so... I say that because it's, it's easy for us to look at uh, maybe these books of the Bible and think they all occurred like at the all the same time period, and they're all talking at the exact same time. But if you look at your little timeline, they're not, right? I mean, the first one begins, what, 845 BC, and the last one ends in 432 BC. There's a 400-year gap time period there. There's some different things going on in history, um, so we'll reference back to this as we get more into the minor prophets over the next six weeks. So if you get a Bible with you, tuck that in there, or um, just keep that in mind in the back of your mind when we're talking about this. So who is a prophet? Maybe you think of the guy with the sandwich board. Maybe you think of the guy on TV. Maybe you think of the guy who wrote a book saying 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 88, and then he came back with a new book because that didn't happen, and then he came back with another new book. You know, maybe that's what you have in mind when you think of a prophet, Uh, but those aren't the prophets that God's talking about. The prophet is really a person who speaks to people on behalf of God. If you think of priests and prophets in the Old Testament, a priest was someone who talked to God on behalf of the people. A prophet was someone who's talked to the people on behalf of God. And they did, what they did is forthtelling and foretelling. Forth telling is preaching to the people right then, right now, what God says to them. Foretelling is usually what we think of when a prophet, they say some things about the future. But if you wanted to put it in percentages, it's probably like 90% forthtelling and 10% foretelling. And yet, often when we think of the prophet, all we think of is, oh, they're talking about the future. But most of what they say is confronting people right where they're at, right then, at that moment. So they do telling and foretelling, and they, uh, the prophet um, is kind of a strange guy, I'll admit that. Um, if you read through your Bible, God asks the prophet to do some strange things to get his message across. Uh, One guy wanders around naked for three years, Um, and uh, that was what God told him to do to express the message that God wanted for his people. Another guy, God tells him to go marry a prostitute um, and to have kids with a prostitute, and that's what God told him to do in order to bring across his message. They are some strange uh, people, Uh, I will admit that. They are uh, extremists for sure. Abraham Heschel, a Jewish rabbi, talks about the prophets, and he says this. He said, The things that horrified the prophets are even now daily occurrences all over the world. To us, a single act of injustice, cheating in business, exploitation of the poor is slight. To the prophets, it's a disaster. To us, injustice is injurious to the welfare of people. To the prophets, it's a death blow to existence. And he says... Uh, To the prophet, no one is just, no knowing is strong enough, no trust is complete enough. The prophet hates the approximate, he shuns the middle of the road, man must live on the summit to avoid the abyss. There is nothing to hold except God. He's carried away by the challenge, the demand to straighten out man's ways. The prophet is strange, one-sided, and an unbearable extremist. This is the prophet. He does three things. He confronts the culture, one. He calls out and confronts the culture. And over the next six weeks, that's why I start off with that question, who speaks truth to you? Because over the next six weeks, I think you'll hear some confronting things. Maybe you come one week and you're like, yeah, that's what I think, and I agree with that. Be careful because you may come back next week and the message is like, oh, I need to deal with that. Because that's the way the prophets are. They're strong in their language, they're clear in their language, uh, and they confront the culture that they live in. In things that one culture might accept and tolerate, the prophets call into question and confront. So they confront culture. The second thing they do is they call people back to God. You gotta turn back to God. So here's what's true about you, here's your response, is turn back to God. Turn, you know, you they call people back to God. And the third thing they do is they cast a vision for the future. They cast a vision for the future. But that vision for the future has two parts to it. They cast a vision for the future. One vision for the future is one of comfort, and another vision for the future is one of Condemnation. And that's sometimes, I think, what people think of when they understand the prophets. These are people always talking doom and bad news and and, and judgment, and that's part of their message. But it's not all of their message. There's a message of comfort in the future and also a message of condemnation at times. And really, the reality is this the prophet is sent to say, You have to choose. It, it isn't, uh, what the prophet does is not like the story of Oedipus. Some of you may be familiar of the, the Greek myth of Oedipus, you know, where this, uh, this man is told that given the prophecy that you're going to kill your father and marry your mother. And uh, as you follow the story, he does everything he can to avoid fulfilling the prophecy and then through a strange series of events ends up Ultimately, fulfilling the prophecy. That's not what the prophets are in the Old Testament. This is not them saying, you know, this is what's going to happen. It's more them saying, this is what's going to happen if. This is what's going to happen if you don't. Or this is what's going to happen if you do. And there's an opportunity. It's actually grace in the prophets. Because they are a warning as much as anything else. So let me just look one, real quickly at the la- last few minutes we have together this morning. Let's look at one of the prophets. His name is Nahum. We're not going to spend a lot of time in it. We're just going to take a few minutes to, by way of looking at this idea of you either they either cast a vision of comfort or a vision of condemnation. And in Nahum, if you have your Bible, you're welcome to turn there or I maybe have it on the screen. I do. Yes, no, yes, maybe. OK. I'm going to read it anyways. OK. Um, so Nahum, chapter one, uh, verses seven and eight. And we selected this passage for this morning and didn't build a whole messenger on the passage, just to give you an idea of the overall understanding and flavor of the minor prophets. Nahum chapter seven, uh, chapter one, excuse me. Verses seven and eight says this: <clears throat> "The Lord is good." A stronghold in the day of trouble, he knows those who take refuge in him. All right, so there's the comfort, right? The Lord is good, stronghold in the day of trouble, he knows who take refuge in him. This is good, this is comforting, this is, this is the casting the vision of the future of the comforting God, this is the God of love. Okay, the very next verse starts off with, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. And will pursue his enemies into darkness. So you have in this passage and in these two verses, really this idea of who the prophets are. At times, they are proclaiming this wonderful comfort, this wonderful, this is who God is. Those who take refuge in him will receive comfort. Those who take refuge in him will, will receive that overwhelming comfort of God. But if you are going to stand against him, the Lord, you will be overwhelmed by judgment. In fact, we're calling this series on the minor prophets Overwhelmed because it's really one of two options. The prophets are not middle-of-the-road people. They're saying, well, it's gonna, in the end, it's going to go one of two ways. You're going to be overwhelmed by the grace of God or you're going to be overwhelmed by the judgment of God. Not a popular message maybe in our world, in our time. It wasn't a popular message in their world and in their time. But that's the truth that they're speaking. It's gonna be overwhelmed by either the judgment of God or overwhelmed by the grace of God. Confrontation, hopefully, if you're listening, when someone confronts you will lead to conviction. But then it's gonna go one of two ways. Either you're going to confess or you're going to hold it in contempt. That's what happens. That's what happens for us. One of two things. When someone confronts us with something about us, and we've all had times in our lives where someone's told you, you know, this is true about you. At that moment, if we're listening, we may feel convicted, and we're going to go one of two ways. We're going to confess and say, yeah, that is true about me, and I need to change that. Or we're going to have contempt, and we're going to get angry, and we're going to dig our feet in, and we're going to say, no, I'm going to continue down the road I'm going. And the message of the prophets is this that there's going to be times where we will be confronted and we are going to have the choice to go down one way or the other. Will we confess or will we hold it in contempt? Who takes refuge in the God in God and who is his adversary? It's all in how we respond. It's all in how you respond. Who is it that gets comfort? And who is it that gets judgment and condemnation? It's in how you and I respond to God's confrontation and the conviction that he brings. Will we confess or will we continue in contempt? Ultimately, all of us have been confronted by God and we have the opportunity to be forgiven. Through Christ, we have the opportunity to be overwhelmed by God's grace. The opportunity is, how will we respond? 1 John chapter 1, verses uh, 9 and 10 say this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's one part. That's kind of like Nahum 1, 7, right? If you confess your sins... He is faithful and just to forgive them. But the very next verse, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And that's what the prophets come down to. They come down to that little word, if. If you go one direction and confess and approach God with humility, you're overwhelmed by the grace and love of God. We just sang about it this morning as the service started. Your grace is enough. You're overwhelmed by that grace and love of God. If we say, no, I'm not a sinner. There's nothing wrong with me. Well, we make God a liar because God has said that all people are sinners. We become an adversary of God. We become opposite of God, His plan and His ways and we're rejecting His offer of grace to us because we refuse to confess. And then eventually, if we never turn, we're overwhelmed by God's judgment. But with the prophets, it really comes down to that word if. If you confess or if you will in contempt say, I am not a sinner. That really determines the road that it goes. Let me close with... um, this short story to kind of illustrate this idea of what happens when you're confronted. Brennan Manning uh, is a Christian writer. Um, He wrote a book, a book I really enjoyed and recommend called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And he went through a real journey to get him to the place he was as a follower of Christ. He was a severe alcoholic for many years. And as part of his recovery time, he tells a time when he had gone into a a 28-day treatment program to recover from this. And early on in the treatment program, they had to sit in a circle with the leader, and they had to tell the truth about themselves and to the other people in the group about their drinking. So they went around the circle, and they all told the truth. Except there was this one guy, he was this one businessman, as Brennan tells it, named Max. When it came for Max to share the extent of his drinking, he said, I never really drank that much. They said, Max, you're in an alcoholic treatment center for a month. You weren't sipping Cokes. Tell the truth about yourself. Admit it. He said, I'm being honest with you. I've never really had that much to drink. They had signed, they had all signed affidavits to be able to get information. And Max had signed one too. They could glean information in any way they so desired. So they had a speaker phone in the center of the circle, and the leader of the group said, I'm gonna call the bartender close to your office, and we'll just find out. So they called the bartender, and the leader says to the person on the phone, Do you know Max so-and-so? The guy says, Oh, like a brother. He stops in every day after work, has a minimum of six martinis. Man, this guy drinks like a fish. He's the best customer. He is a prolific consumer of alcohol. The rest of the people in the group all looked at Max, and now there's the moment of truth, confrontation, conviction. Max tells the truth about himself. He says, yes, uh, I've had a lot to drink. A little later on in the group, they ask everyone, have you ever hurt anybody, a friend or a family member, while you were drunk? Some people said yes, and they described it. Other people said no. They tried to get at the truth, and if it was the truth, that was the truth. They, all, they get all the way around to Max, who says, I would never hurt anybody, not when I'm sober, not when I'm drunk. I would never hurt anybody, family or friend. And so... They don't really believe. They say, Max, we don't believe you. And he says, we're going to call your wife. And so they call Max's wife, and Max starts breathing heavily. He knows something coming that he's been unwilling to face. The leader says, Mrs. So and so, has Max ever mistreated you or anyone in the family when he was drunk? And she said, well, yes, he has. It just happened this last Christmas Eve. He took our nine year old daughter shopping on Christmas Eve, bought her a new pair of shoes. He's a very generous man. On the way home, our little girl was sitting in the front seat enjoying her new shoes, and Max passed the bar and saw the cars of some of his buddies. He pulled in. It was a cold, wintry day, 12 degrees, with a high wind chill. He made sure all the windows were rolled up snugly. He left the car running so that the heater was blowing and said to our nine-year-old daughter, I'll be right back. You just play with your shoes. I'll be right back. He went in the bar and started drinking with his buddies. He didn't come out of the bar until midnight. In that time, the vehicle had shut off. The windows had all become frosted over, locked up tight so she couldn't get herself out of the car, When the authorities opened the car and rushed her to the hospital, she was so badly frostbitten that her thumb and forefinger had to be amputated, and her ears were so damaged by the cold that she'll be deaf the rest of her life. The wife describes this to the group, and Max falls off his chair and starts convulsing on the ground. He just couldn't bear telling himself the truth about what he had done. He couldn't face it. He was going to live the rest of his life in some fantasy world of denial about what he had done. And I tell that story, and I close with that story for this reason. It's a hard story to listen to, obviously. But I close with the story for this reason, because when we come to something like the Minor Prophets, and we come to some of the topics we're going to talk about over the next six weeks, I just know how we are as people. I know how I am as a person. I know I can deceive myself really well. And I know I have the capacity of convincing myself that they're not talking about me. I know I have the capacity. When we, talk, when we come to passages that are going to talk about injustice, when we come to passages that are going to talk about taking advantage and how God feels about the poor or how God feels about this group or that person or how God feels about sin or how God feels about false worship, I know I have the capacity within myself to convince myself that that's not me. Just like Max had the capacity to convince himself that he had hurt no one. So all I'm asking for the next several weeks as we get in this past, is the same thing we ask every week. And my prayer, when we come to church, God, give us ears to hear what you would say to us. And I'd ask that you would listen. God, come first to listen and to ask God, is that something you're saying to me in the midst of this? Are you calling me in here? Are you convicting me? And then once you are at that point, well then there's a choice. You're either going to confess say God that's me and I need your forgiveness and when you do, the Bible says very clearly God extends His grace and forgiveness and refuge to you. Or you're going to dig your feet in Say this is not me. Not talking about me and I'm okay and I don't need God's grace and I don't need God to help me in this area. I'm fine. Everyone else, there's a lot of people that are worse off than me. And you're going to make yourself an adversary of God. And eventually at some point be overwhelmed by God's judgment. But God in this moment, we stand in the if. If you will confess. If you will turn, then God will be gracious and will forgive you and extend his grace to you in your life. And so that's where we're going the next six weeks. And, but maybe you're in here today. I'm going to ask uh, Ting and the music ministry to come back. We're going to close out in a song of worship. And if you're in here today, we haven't even really gotten into some of these topics. But if you're in here today, maybe that's where you know you've been. Maybe God has already convicted you of something in your life. Maybe God's been working on something in your life and you know there's a place in your life that you are not living and worshiping God and living for him and he's called you on it. He's made it clear. He's made it clear in your heart. Maybe they've sent something in your life that tells you you got a big nose and beaver teeth. She, you know, someone's called you on it or maybe you just know in your spirit and you through the preaching of Pastor Brian here and you know that there's something that's supposed to change in my life and I just ask you this morning to consider responding in humility and confessing to God and turning to him in order to follow him and when you do in that moment God extends his grace and forgiveness and he will overwhelm you with his grace and forgiveness because what I believe for you is God's better is better than anything you and I can come up with on our own. That God's best is better than whatever you and I could come up with. And that if we will place ourselves in his hands, that that'll be the best path that we can travel. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, as we come this morning to an obscure text in an obscure maybe part of the Bible that many of us don't spend a lot of time in, Lord, but yet a good and important place, a place that tells us that if we will come to you in humility, that you will give us a refuge, that you will forgive us, that you will overwhelm us with your grace and love. Lord, but if we choose to go our own way and reject what you are offering, that eventually we will be overwhelmed by your judgment in the road that we've chosen and we'll be separated from you. Father, I pray for each and every person in this building this morning. I pray for each and every person at this Belmont campus and in Burlington that, Lord, as we over the next several weeks take a look at some hard passages, Lord, I pray right now that you would do that work of softening our hearts to your Holy Spirit. That we would come first to listen. That we would come first to ask, are you talking to me, Lord? What are you saying to me? And how are you calling me to respond? Lord, I pray that each and every one of us, when we approach your word, that we come with a soft, listening heart, willing to follow and obey you in whatever way that you lead, God. And Lord, when we come today, we thank you for that grace. Thank you for that grace that you extend to us in every aspect of our life that we come and confess. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing this last song of worship. And if that's you today, where you've said, you know what, there's something in my life that needs to change and it's going to change today, then as we're singing and as we're worshiping, I encourage you to take some time to just talk to God, to let Him know, to ask Him to give you the strength as you turn to Him to live your life for Him fully in every way, to be honest with yourself, And be honest with him and what he's calling you to do. Let's sing this last song of worship together.